for another episode and week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line uh, with the movers and shakers of TV and filmmakers, um, directors, writers, producers, actors, uh, ed- video editors, sound editors, sound mixers, costumers, production designers, composers. We got them all. Uh, and happy to have them all as we are we are here again in what week week eight going on week nine of uh of life in the time of of covid um but movies keep chugging along we might not have theatrical releases but around the country there are quite a few drive-in theaters popping up um there are still a few actual drive-in theaters in existence Uh, in the United States, but there are some properties that are now popping up with drive-in theaters. Um, So that's exciting to see. Uh, I know in Florida, there's some, in in the South, some drive-ins. I believe in Montclair, in Southern California, there's a drive-in, and they are actually showing movies on the big screen, uh, which is nice to see. Hopefully, we'll get the theaters open sooner rather than later. We do have some big films set to open uh, this July, Mulan being one of them for Disney. So that's it's going to be interesting to see if they hold that date in July now. Uh, there's also Tenet that's set to open up. So we'll see what happens if they move ahead with the releases or if they hang on to them or do a pivot to digital only. And uh, for a film as in the scope and grandeur of Milan, I really hope that Disney does not do the pivot and they hold out for theatrical uh, on the big screen. But we'll see what happens. Wonderful show today for you. Uh, at the midpoint of the show, writer, director, editor Jonathan Smith is going to join us live to talk about his film, Batshit Bride. You have heard about this film last month the dear dear Chad Anthony Miller was here was live on the show he is act, he is in the film and he talked about the film from the actor's perspective as well as lots of other great tidbits about acting and theater work and film and the collaborative spirit of filmmaking um actually Chad I know you're listening you you were so intelligent on that show part of why I love you uh but that was the precursor to Jonathan coming on today. Originally, Batshit Bride was scheduled to open in April, tied to April Fool's Day because of the plot of the film. Unfortunately, it had to do a pivot, and it has pivoted to this past Friday. It opened uh, on your digital platforms everywhere. So Jonathan will be joining us at the midpoint in the show. But before Jonathan... I'm very excited about this particular film, Blood and Money, uh, written, directed with cinematography done by John Barr. This is John's feature film directorial. He is a known cinematographer, but he now makes the move to writer-director. Film stars Tom Berenger, and it's fabulous. I had a chance to talk to John the other day, uh, about this at length. And you're going to hear that exclusive interview in a moment. But first, before we bring up John's interview, want to mention, give a shout out for Hollywood Critics Association Triviathon to benefit COVID relief. Uh, HCA, of which I'm a member, uh, we are doing a Triviathon this coming Saturday, May 16th, uh, 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, on YouTube and Twitch. It is free to play. Uh, it's all movie and TV it's across the board. There'll be prizes, raffles, surprise guests. And of course, you can make uh, donations through Venmo and PayPal to benefit various charities, among them uh, UNICEF, ASPCA, Actors Fund, Feeding America, United Way. Uh, but that should be fun. It will, as again, HCA Trivia-a-thon to movie and TV Trivia-a-thon to benefit COVID relief this Saturday, May 16th, 
5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube and Twitch. Go to social media. Go to my website, uh, BehindTheLensOnline.net. It has all everything in there about it. You can find that. Uh, you can go to HCA on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, and find out more about it. But it should be a whole lot of fun. I'm personally curious to see what kind of trivia questions uh, all of the the HCA members have come up with and contributed, uh, and which ones get used. So that that's a it's fun, and it's for COVID relief. So mark your calendars for that. But now, without any further ado, let's move on. Blood, uh, blood and money. It's it's an inter- it's a it's a great character study. It's a crime thriller. It's a story of a retired marine, uh, a former marine, retired marine veteran uh, named Jim Reed, who is out hunting in the Allagash snow country of Maine when he finds a dead woman with a duffel bag full of money. So it takes off from there. What's stunning about this film is that. Number one, you'll hear John talk about, John Barr talk about it. He based the character Jim Reed on his father. Uh, And Reed is a very quiet man. Uh, He is a former Marine in every sense of the word with his methodology, with the way he thinks, with the way he moves, with the way he acts. Uh, A lot of cinematography, of course. John does the cinematography himself, and it is beautiful. And shot in the winter under blankets of snow in this wooded forest area uh, that is filled with aspens and birch trees, uh, that the leaves are gone, but you've got that beautiful bark, uh, sh- bark shading that is natural to the to those east coast, northeastern trees. Um, and it all plays into the visual aspect of the film as well as the crime thriller that unfolds. So, take a listen to my exclusive interview with writer, director, cinematographer John Barr talking about blood and money. Hi, Debbie. How are you? Well, I'm very excited to be talking to you this morning about blood and money. Oh, that's so cool. I I love this film. I was mesmerized by it from beginning to end. Um, this is a slow burn character study, tailor made for Tom Berenger, and the, <laughs> and the way that you mirror man and nature here, um, especially Berenger's character of Jim Reed, the black and white of nature um, versus Jim's code of conduct, ethics, and integrity. Um, there's no gray. It's, it's black and white, so the location is perfect. Your cinematography is to die for. Your sound design, I am in love with this film. That is so good to hear. Thank you so much for, for those kind words. It's amazing. Um, where did the idea for this film originate? What was the, the kernel of goodness that started this? So... Um uh, Jim Reed, the the character that Tom plays, um, is loosely based on my on my father. Wow. So, um, yeah. So that's where this whole thing originated. Um, he lives a very similar lifestyle to Tom's character. He, the RV that um, is in the film, is my dad's RV. Um, I took it from him for a month. Um, he's been living in it for five years now. Okay, you took um, it from him. Does he? Did he know you took it from him, or was this a typical, <laughs> yeah, like a teen prank? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We um, we put him in the the hotel on um, the Bethel Inn in Bethel, Maine. You know, for a month um, with all the with all the cast. Um, so he was very well looked after. But uh, it's like a you know a a sailor coming to shore <laughs> for, for a month, you know, he was a little bit out of his element, but he, um, he adapted pretty well. Oh my God. Did he check every day and say, how, how's my RV? How's my RV? How's my RV? <laughs> well, 
It's, it's interesting. He he trusted everybody um, that drove it. Um, Frosty Silva, our stunt coordinator, was pretty much in charge of the uh, of the rig, so he would drive it. He would do all the um, you know the driving for it. So um, and my dad was very comfortable with him. Frosty's done a lot of huge films, and you know he trusted him. So. Um, uh, yeah, I think it was more just um, the whole experience. He's a very uh, nomadic. Um, he lives a very nomadic existence, so mm-hmm. he's by himself a lot of the time. So, you know, we had forty or fifty people in town working on this film that I was directing. So it was a little, you know, I think he. It took him a while just to get adjusted to that. So mm-hmm. that was a that was a tough, more tougher uh, thing for him to overcome. I think. Is your dad a former Marine? He's a uh, merchant marine, and okay. originally um, the character was a merchant marine. But you know, I started talking with Tom early on, um, months before we uh, started shooting, and he, you know, asked if if that would be an option to shift that element of his character to a to a marine, and um, and it made sense. You know, yeah. he, he he loves that world. He's obviously played that world. Yeah, uh, he has a lot of. Um, friends that um, exist at a high level in that world and he you know he felt if it was okay with me if he felt strongly about changing that and and it made sense so it really yeah. works so well because of the nature of the story because of what you're telling and because of that marine I know many marines many former marines mm-hmm. and um, they have that very strong code of conduct and also, it comes into play with the, you know, looking for the criminals. It's very methodical. Yeah, it's very thought out. Their mind is always thinking 20 steps ahead, just like we absolutely. see Jim Reed in tracking a buck um, for his one, the one allowed buck that you can shoot a season. Um, mm. And there again, you are so methodical in the detail, these little details that you put in here, John, where he is so law-abiding that he leaves his notes, he leaves his trail markers, he checks in, um, he reports things he sees. He never, he's never left that Marine Corps mindset. And yeah. that is so key to the cat-and-mouse structure of the thriller aspect of this film. Yeah. Well, thank you for noticing all that. That's, you know, all that all plays into it for sure. You know, you are, in addition to writing, directing, you're a cinematographer on here. Um, yeah. This is a difficult film to be a cinematographer on. Anytime you're dealing with snow, and boy, have you got snow. <laughs> it was the, um, I think it was the biggest snowfall recorded in 40 years. In in, uh, in Bethel, where we shot in Newry, um, so yeah, it was it was super challenging. But I, I don't know if you um, know my background, but I grew up in Maine, so mm-hmm. I have um, you know I I lived that environment you know for so many years of my life. It was um, it was actually fun you know to to be shooting a film in that in that world. Um, but yeah, it was a huge snowfall that year, and we uh, fortunately we had a enough prep time that we could, you know, take snowmobiles and go out and, you know, um, snowpack wherever we were shooting. And then it would snow a couple more feet. And, you know, we would just go out. We would always like be ahead of the game, like knowing where we were going to be shooting and, you know, preparing the ground accordingly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yeah, that was, if we didn't have that, um, it would have been, you know, I don't know how many times <laughs> more difficult, but, uh, you know, we, I think we, um, we had the right approach to it so, it, so it worked out. Well, and something that I've always noticed with Snow and in speaking with so many cinematographers over the years, one of the big challenges they have with Snow, uh, similarly with sand in the desert, is the sunlight, the reflection, the refraction. You know, so many cinematographers, Snow and Desert are very similar with the challenges they present in terms of lighting and the reflection and refraction of the sun off of the surface and I love the specific location you picked with the birch trees the aspens that are threadbare so we have just a tiny bit of the brown in the bark peeking through but the sunlight it's not a glaring sunlight bearing down 
So you get this really no. nice, crisp, diffused light in here that is beautiful. Well, yeah, I mean, thank you for saying that. Like, I, um, you know, at wearing all these hats does have its advantages because, you know, and also shooting, the, you know, most of the film with one character has its advantages because you can pick and choose when you shoot certain scenes, where you shoot certain scenes, mm -hmm. what kind of weather you're dealing with. Um, so if we're outside and it's, the sun is too bright for the certain scene, then we can, you know, break early for a meal or we can move on to a different scene, wait for some cloud cover or what have you. So, um, you know, there are a lot of uh, benefits to, to having such a, you know, reduced size of cast and crew um, because we could move as a unit pretty quickly and, and adjust on the fly. Mm -hmm. how, how long did it take you to find this specific location, especially the wooded areas and that cave? I got to tell you, that ice cave, the ice on the ground, that stunning. It looks gorgeous. Yeah. But it yeah. also, it gives that, you feel the trepidation as Jim starts walking on it. And you're thinking, oh, my God, is there water under there? Is he going to plunge in? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, and then he finds that island in the middle of it where he can, like, you know, be safe. You yes. Know? Um, so, yeah, I, I think, um, you know, the first, we, we were prepping the film for three months. So, like, we spent a lot of the first six weeks finding all these locations. I had my production designer come out, and um, we just, would hump through the woods, you know, and, and, um, explore. And I mean, that was a, you know, so much fun in itself, you know, but, um, the cave, especially like we researched for weeks, um, trying to find a cave. And if you look online, there's really nothing that's obvious. Mm -hmm. and, um, one of our executive producers, Jeff Stearns, um, recommended that we go, there's a gem shop in, uh, Bethel. He said, like, why don't we just go there and ask them because they mine for all this stuff, you know. Um, and sure enough, the couple that owned um, Gem Shop owned a bunch of property that had, an, you know, the, the cave that we ended up shooting. So, wow. um, you know, it's it was just, you know, exploration, you know, and that's, um, you know, one of the, I don't know, more, one of the more fun things to do in prep is just, you know, exploring and trying to find all the all the locations that you imagined um, when you wrote the script that you would find. So, Well, this location, you know, in addition to the trees, the cave, I, the topography in and of itself, because it gives you so many different POVs, be it, mm. be it Jim's POV, as he's up high, as he's, you know, above wind, not downwind, um, where you've got the, the it slopes down and you've got your criminals congregating down there and he's got the upper vantage point. Then we, we get some level playing field in certain areas. I love that we get a continually different, it's all Jim's POV, but it's always shifting. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting that you say that because like that was, um, you know, a, a topic of conversation because I, I wanted the whole film to never break away from him mm -hmm. you know, I wanted you know like because it would have been quite easy to go down to the criminals or to see the see the robbery the casino you know the robbery um, that happens in the story like mm -hmm. see that and you know establish these characters earlier on and um, I didn't want to do that I wanted it to be all about this guy and his experience and and what he goes through in these um, in these few days and um, you know I'm glad I stuck to my guns because I Oh. I'm happy with the way it came up. I'm thrilled you stuck to your guns. And, of course, then I look at Tom's performance and the way he is moving. Um, because I highly doubt that Tom really had stunt doubles. If he did, it was rare. Because I know Tom likes to do all of his own stuff as much as he can. And watching yeah. his the way he moves, wearing the bulky clothing but also the way he's navigating through the snow. Um, and I love the way, and the camera is viewing him from behind in so many of those cases. And it's really yeah. interesting to see how he moves 
um, you know, shuffling, shuffling the feet more or less to cover up a lot of footprints, things like that. Things yeah. that Marine training would tell somebody, military training would tell someone that that's what they'd be doing. Um, but to watch Tom's movement and the effortlessness of it. Um, I know if I were out in snow that deep and growing up in suburban Philadelphia, I've been out in snow that deep um, <laughs> and up in the Poconos. But yeah. I, I can tell you, I'm not moving that, that effortlessly and gracefully through that kind of snow. <laughs> yeah, he, um, he trained hard for it. Like, you know, um, like I was saying, we, uh, you know, spent quite a bit of time together. And, you know, I have, you know, we, we talked about how difficult it would be, you know, in the snow. Mm -hmm. And, you know, honestly, I didn't have to say anything because he knew it would be difficult. And he, you know, he prepared, um, you know, for months for it, you know, and to be honest, he was in better shape than a lot of the crew, you know, like he, he handled the, um, the elements, uh, you know, better than a lot of people that were, that were uh, working on the film. So mm -hmm. it was impressive. How logistically challenging was it for you um, from a directorial standpoint, and more importantly, from a somatographic standpoint and your equipment, your cameras, your batteries? Um, I know that always, weather always comes into play in terms of cold. Yeah. Um, was that a problem or a big consideration for you? Um, you know, it wasn't because, um, again, like I've, I grew up in that environment, um, and you know, my focus puller, um, Kyle Smith, who's incredible. He, um, he did the research, you know, and so we never, we never, uh, had any, um, we never had to compromise at all in that area. Like we, um, we were, we were prepared as, as best as we could be. So we did have a piece of equipment. Um, I had a, um, a movie, um, uh, that, you know, it was like a camera stabilization, mm -hmm. um, that, that went down on the first shot of the first day, oh, wow. <laughs> which was, uh, yeah, we built like this really cool, um, uh, sled out of snowboards and speed rail and had a black arm mounted to it and then had this, um, gimbal, um, uh, that the camera would rest on mm -hmm. and it couldn't handle the cold, you know, it couldn't handle the cold at all. So it kind of, you know, we aborted that, um, that system mm -hmm. altogether, like because we couldn't we couldn't afford to wait on anything for this for this project you know we had to be so efficient so we just um you know i adapted a different a different technique and um so that that was the only uh equipment issue that we had the cameras were great you know we shot on minis you know and it was um and they were rock solid the alexa, alexa minis yeah alexa minis yeah and what lenses were you using on this one um, Master Prime. Master Primes are good. Yeah, and we shot, you know, yeah, I mean, you know, we shot on, I don't know, three or four lenses for the majority, you know, pretty much between like 25 and 35, you know, the mm -hmm. whole time. Um, uh, you know, because we were, we were with Jim, you know, obviously there are the longer lens POV stuff through the scope, sure. um, which is different, um, but, uh, you know, we were with Jim, you know, close and wide for the majority of the film. So, um, you know, it made, um, you know, it just made that, that feeling um, consistent throughout. Mm -hmm. I've got to ask you about the sound design. Tony Van, your sound editor, re-recording mixer. The sound design, John, you celebrate the quiet. You embrace the quiet. Again, almost like it's it's metaphorically linked to Jim Reed's mind, um, but there's an elegance. We can we hear the softness of walking in the softer snow, but then we hear the crunch of stepping in it after an overnight freeze, and then yeah. the, the echoes of gunfire. It is all so meticulous. I'm curious how much of this was actual production sound that Tony then worked on in post. And how much was actually foleyed in or, or ADR'd in after? We didn't do any foley. Um, wow. Everything was recorded. Um, we know we so we. I don't know if you noticed, like the wind plays a huge character. In, Very much in so. Well, so. Very um, much. You know that was. You know we captured you know as much as we could on. Um, on location, mm -hmm. you know, like the, 
Matthew, my um, sound man, he would go out um, on off days and just, you know, walk around the woods recording himself walking, you know, at different paces, at different, you know, you know, thicknesses of surface crust, like you were saying. Like, he, he did it all. Like, so we, we had a lot of um, options. <laughs> when we got to, you know, Tony was blown away with how much uh, how much we recorded out in the field. Yeah, I mean, the sound design is so beautiful, John. And it really, it further imbues this idea of Jim is, he's actually one with nature. Yeah. And it's, you know, as we see unfold, as we see unfolding in the world, you know, Mother Nature likes to come in and kick your butt and, and take charge. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, you have to respect it constantly, you know. And that's exactly what, you know, we see. And then we do get some some lighter moments, you know, peeing on the truck in the snow. That's not a good thing to do, and there will be reparations for that. Yeah. Uh, and you know, and you know, so you lighten it up a little bit in moments like that, and then you also you take the camera a little wider in those in lighter things like that. I mean, granted, you've got some wider framing in order to get when we've got Jim up high looking down low at where the criminals are. Um, but for the most part, you don't widen it out. You keep us in Jim's sphere with enough yeah. periphery. Um, that it's realistic, that it's very realistic that, yes, a man has, you can, you have this much peripheral vision. Yeah. I mean, and that, that was the intent, you know, like, again, to, to be with him, you know, obviously you want to showcase the landscape because it's stunning, it's you know, but, um, you know, you also just want to be with him and, and see everything that's going on in his face and in his mind, like, um, you know, and then with that, you know, having Tom be that person that you're photographing, like it makes it, it makes it uh, easy. <laughs> you now, know, he was, he was great. Now, you know, the music in this film, your score, very judicially used, yeah. judiciously used. Um, what were your thoughts in speaking with Zach McNeil about the music for this film? Because you don't want it to overpower. And then here again, Tony's mix comes into play. So that the music that's there, it's subtle, and it doesn't overpower the wind. It doesn't overpower Mother Nature or the elements. Yeah, I mean, that was a huge thing. Like, we wanted it to, um, you know, feel like it belongs, obviously. So um, it needed to um, go hand in glove with with the wind and whatever was happening um, in the scene, you know, and I think... Um, you know, we, we pushed we pushed the score pretty hard in a few moments, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, those moments those moments where, you know, it cuts to the next day and it's quiet, you know, and I and I felt like those moments where the score does build up in a very specific moment and then it hard cuts to quiet, like, you know, those moments are so effective, you know, it gives the audience a, a second to breathe, um, and then you're right back in it. You mm -hmm. know, so it's um you know, Zach was amazing. You know, he's he's so talented, and I had such a good time with him. We, um, you know, we had very little time, you know, like to and money to do this. So, like, we had to do it quickly. And you know, he's you know he's brilliant. You know, I'll use him on every every movie I do. Now, you know, I'm no stranger to your work as cinematographer. I love what you did in Cowgirls and Angels with my friend Bailey. <laughs> um, oh yeah. But this is now, Blood and Money is your first feature directorial. So I'm curious what that learning curve was like for you, jumping into the hot seat. Um, you know, I, I, it wasn't as difficult as you might imagine. You know, like, and I say that with, you know, you know I'm, so, I'm so humble and I'm so thankful and grateful for having the opportunity. You know, I, I you know, I feel like we had enough time to prep so when we actually got to shooting it um it was just executing the plan you know which i do as have done as a dp you know for a long time mm -hmm. as a gaffer before that like i think it's just taking tools that you learn over the years and just you know taking the best bits of what you learn from people that you've worked with you know and implementing them into your own style and 
what makes sense for you. You know, I think I had enough time with Tom prior to shooting that we aligned, you know, um, on what this character needed to be. So that was um, pretty straightforward once we got shooting. There were, you know, you know, boundaries that you have to set up and then you just let people work within them, you know. And um, I think, uh, you know, Tom's relationship with me was great. You know, I feel like we, we did something really good in a short amount of time, you know, and that's all you can really hope for, you know. And um, yeah, so I, I think like having the camera on my shoulder and being a few feet away from Tom, like just made everything work really well. You know, I could talk to him, you know, not have to cut, wait for a director to come in and give notes. Like we could just be working on the fly and just have things happen in the moment and adjust and just keep going, which was huge. You know, I think that's a really, for me anyway, a really good way to work. So what took you so long to finally direct, John? I, <laughs> I look at I look at this film and I'm like, oh my God, where has this man been? I mean, you're a wonderful storyteller, you know, with the script, with character, and the visuals. It's a beautiful marriage that you have here. Well, thank you. That's that's really nice of you to say. You know, but what took you so darn long? <laughs> well, it's, everybody has their path, right? I mean, I, listen, I, I've worked with, like, some of the top people in this industry. You have. You know, and, and um, you know, you having exposure to that and learning from that is huge, and that's made me who I am today. So it's like I, you know, I, it was all, it was all, everything that's happened in my past is meant to happen to bring me here, I guess, you know. So, yeah, hopefully I'll be able to make a bunch more. Oh, so. God. And that was writer, director, cinematographer John Barr talking about Blood and Money. Stars Tom Berenger. As if that's not reason enough to see a film. Uh, VOD and Friday, every digital platform uh, around, see it. I highly recommend it. It is a great character study. It's a beautiful film. And it truly belies this being John's first feature uh, debut directorial. And right now we're going to shift gears and it, we're going to get batshit here with Batshit Bride and Jonathan Smith. Hey, Jonathan. Hello. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Uh, I'm great. Yeah. Well, we've waited a long time to talk about this film. Yes, we have. And, th- and actually, I just want to check. Can you hear me okay? I can, I can hear you fine. Pam? Fantastic. And Pam's giving me the thumbs up that it sounds fine coming through in the booth, so. Okay. Terrific. I'm not always the best with this sort of tech stuff, so I appreciate it. Oh, no. That's okay. So, finally got the release. Uh, Batshit Bride is finally now out. Yes. Uh, So... First of all, how has this waiting game... We've got to address this waiting game um, because while a lot of films did immediate pivots um, once everybody realized exactly the extent of what the lockdowns and quarantines were going to be with Mm -hmm. COVID, but you were kind of in flux. Um, You didn't have an immediate, okay, well, we're just not going to open theatrical tomorrow. We're... We don't know what we're doing. We're not doing anything. Uh, we're not pivoting. Um, so, how was that for you as a filmmaker to have? Yeah, I mean, okay. That uncertainty. So, um. Well, I mean, it, it was a roller coaster. That's for sure. Um, so, the reason uh, we didn't pivot as quickly as say a studio is just uh, you know it's a smaller film. It's not like a Marvel movie or something like that. Um, and, um, you know, I was dealing with a smaller distributor and we're just, you know, we're a smaller fish in a, in a big pond. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it wasn't just as hard cut. Like we, we also don't hold a lot of, uh, uh, you know, the best cards in a deck, uh, mm-hmm. with theaters, you know, Disney can do what it wants to do. So, uh, I think it was just like due to the size of the film, uh, that it was a little bit of a, like a more amorphous shift. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a roller coaster. Like at first we thought that the new theatrical was going to be like, it would just end up being day and date with the um, home entertainment release, which mm-hmm. sounded great to me as, a, yeah. as an idea for, sh- for shifting. But then actually the, uh, the theatrical is just like indefinitely po- po- postponed <laughs> right now. And um, it will still happen. 
Um, but for now, it's on home entertainment. Uh, actually, the, the, the only thing that was, and believe me, this is a, a major pandemic. It's a very serious issue. Uh, I feel nothing bad about having to shift my puny little film uh, because I only hope that the world is better. Uh, and, I, you know, that's the most important thing, obviously. But if I do it, if I am going to express uh, just a little bit of disappointment about one thing, it was that, like, while I was making this film for years and years, I so hoped that I could open it the week of uh, April Fool's Day because <laughs> the film has to do with April Fool's Day. <laughs> yep. And uh, and I had set it up. It was beautiful. It was perfect. I couldn't believe the timing. And that's what I lost. So, you know, uh, that's that's the little thing that will you know, always be like a, a tiny little hole in my heart, I guess, but no big deal. <laughs> but, you know, the, on the on the upside here, the film just opened on Friday on digital platforms. So everybody mm. at this point, they, they've been so cooped up and they've been watching so much stuff, they are looking for new things to see. Uh, it's like, yeah, they don't want to go back to the Netflix well again. Is yeah, there, is, is, and I, so, I hope that my film is uh, is good content for them uh, for that very reason. Very uh, much. I mean, that is the weirdest silver lining of this whole pandemic uh, is that people are looking for more and more content. So hopefully, uh, you know, more people than would have watched it sans pandemic are watching the film now. Well, and I hope they are. You know how much I love this film. Um, thank you. Yes, yes. Thank you. You've been <laughs> you've been so very kind, and like I, the cast and crew, we all super appreciate it. <laughs> and you know, but where does the idea? We've seen train wreck wedding films before, many, many, many times. But this one, you have a very unique spin here, with the bride wanting to prank her fiance, and say, mm-hmm. "Nah, nah." Spark's gone. We're not going to get married. Wedding's off. And mm-hmm. then have him turn around and say, oh, God, I'm so glad you said that because I really don't want to marry you. Um, <laughs> this is something we have not seen before. So where did the idea, where did this this specific premise come from, Jonathan? Yeah, of course. Thank you. Um, so that's a long story, and I'll try to tell it as quickly as I can. Um, but I... Um, I first thought of that idea, and that's actually the whole movie comes from just that one scene. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought of that idea, like, I think near the end of college, uh, just as I was graduating, I was, I was, I, don't, I can't even remember why I thought of it, but for some <laughs> reason I thought, like, oh man, that'd be a funny April Fool's prank, and then for it to go around like that. And that was the whole thing uh, that started it. And then shortly after I graduated college, I wrote the first draft of the script, and, um, this, uh, this is how truly college-level writing it was at the time. Uh, first, it was actually from the uh, groom's perspective. He was the one who joked, uh, who pranked the bride, and the bride was the one who didn't want to marry him. And uh, his name was Joe King, uh, which is just about one of the worst jokes in the world. Um, and uh, that's how it started out. And I'm sure if I looked at that draft, it was probably total garbage uh and uh but i you know i always loved it and i continued to work on it throughout the years uh the film was always too expensive for me to make um earlier on because you know it's uh it's got like huge weddings uh, at least two of them and other and i need like a wedding venue which can be expensive and all that stuff um but i always uh i always return to it i would noodle on it uh, every few years uh, and then after my first two films, uh, once I finish a film and I start to feel the itch to make another one, I start to think like what's viable. And, um, you know, after my second film, when I was feeling the itch to make another one, I thought, you know what, uh, maybe I can actually finally do this one now. And, um, and somehow I, I managed. <laughs> well, you certainly did. And, you know, with that premise that, that opens the world up wide for you from a comedic standpoint, uh, but that mm-hmm. then rises and falls on your cast, and especially where you take this film. It starts with casting Megan Falcone as Heather, our bride. Mm-hmm. Where did you find Megan? She is brilliant. As I have described her performance, she gives a, a, it's a high-energy, frenetic, spot-on, rapid-fire, Roz Russell from His Girl Friday as Heather. It is an indelible performance. Where did you wow. find Megan? Okay, so um, first of all, I agree with you 100%. She is 
absolutely amazing in the film, uh, especially when you consider, like, she's absolutely amazing in the film uh, if you shot that on a regular schedule. Uh, we shot that film in two weeks, mm-hmm. and uh, I can't even remember a time where I had to do another take because she flubbed a line. Uh, like, that was almost never the reason. So she was motor-mouthing her way through this script uh, mm-hmm. in two weeks. Flawlessly. I don't know how she memorized it and how she delivered it so like flawlessly from start to finish. It was just amazing. And also maintain that energy because uh, I was beat to hell by the end of the film, but she was going all the way through. Uh, but yeah, she is absolutely brilliant and perfect for the, uh, for the role. And uh, I'm going to embarrass myself a little bit uh, with how I cast my film sometimes when I tell you how I decided on Megan. But um, I've known Megan for a long time. I've actually known Megan, Josh Covid, and Johnny Schwartzbein for a long time, uh, the three main characters in the film, uh, from my improv comedy days in Los Angeles. Uh, we all started around the same time and uh, kind of like rose at the same time and were in groups together and shows together. Um, so I've known her for a long time, and often when I start to cast for a film, the place I go first is just my iPhone contacts and start scrolling through <laughs> and going, who might be good for this? And uh, I was scrolling through. And uh, I saw Megan's name. I was like, geez, you know, Megan might be really good for this. Uh, so I asked her. And uh, honestly, I think I only asked two people to read for the role. Mm-hmm. And um, Megan sent me a tape. And, and I, I think the tape, if I remember correctly, was of that, uh, of the breakup scene of the pranked on a rye. And, uh, and it was perfect. I mean, I just thought, I was like, that's, that's what I envisioned in my head. She pulled it right out of my head and just did it right back to me. And uh, I knew that she was the best person for the role when I watched that tape. Well, and watching, watching the end product, there is no doubt in your mind, in anyone's mind, that she is perfect in this role. And the beauty of your casting is then you get Josh Covet as, as our groom. And they're like night and day. He's calm. He's relatively unflappable. Totally different. And it makes you wonder, you know, is it true opposites attract or do they not? Um, so that balance, that yin and yang balance that you give us is works so well with this story. And Thank you. I, I think Josh is, and then his chemistry with Megan is amazing. Well, yeah, and so... Uh that chemistry that you see on scene is, uh, is true of them as friends in real life. And, and all of us, I mean, like Megan, Johnny, uh, Josh and I are all, like I said, old friends. Uh, we all, because we kind of trained in comedy together, we all like are on the same wavelength. Uh, it's really great to be able to cast, uh, comedians like that, uh, too, that you've known for a long time because on a short shoot, uh, it helps a lot to be able to use shorthand, you know, like where, mm-hmm. you know, you might, direct a scene that looks completely complicated to most people. And for us on set, it was just like, oh, yeah, it's just a group game with walk-ons. And you nail it in, like, you know, two or three takes Mm -hmm. uh, just because of that shorthand that we've done on stage together for so long. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Josh, too, also. Josh is a brilliant comedic actor. He's a brilliant improviser. uh, And um, he and Megan, uh, you know, like, uh, they're good friends. We've known each other for a long time, all of us, and, uh, and it shows on screen, and mm-hmm. uh, I think it shows in the work. Well, yeah, and your supporting players here do a lot of heavy lifting in this film, particularly hmm. um, Heather's three BFFs, Becky, hmm. Cindy, and Gretchen. You've got, uh, I mean, your actresses, Alicia, Shana, and Kayla, are they are a perfect triumvirate to surround... Hmm. Heather. Um, now, I'm curious, because of the nature of the antics that you have unfolding in this film, did you write out those antics before casting? Did you tweak them once you cast? Did you cast a fit? I mean, you've got uh, the whole bridal shed, the uh, bachelorette party, and the tone that it takes with the girls and Heather wanting mm-hmm. to micromanage and take over. But then as everything progresses, um, it feels like the roles were very specific for these girls because they are so believable. So I'm, hmm. I'm curious um, that process. Well, yeah. Uh, so thank you again. Uh, I'm so glad that you liked them because the one thing that was um, true about this film is that it's a wedding comedy. And so there's a lot of things that we all know from wedding comedies mm-hmm. and a lot of things that 
kind of simply have to be included because, you know, there's the tradition of the wedding and there are certain roles in it. And of course, there's going to be the bridesmaids. And we've seen all kinds of uh, comedic bridesmaids yes. in films, uh, even in the film, you know, that is called Bridesmaids. Uh, and so, you know, like I obviously needed to try to do something unique with them uh, because they had to be in the film. Um, and um, so to answer one of your questions early on and what you just said, um, I'd actually, so I actually did like try different variations about like, uh, you know, like for Alicia uh, Gian Grisostomy's character, like what's going to be funny about her? What's going to be funny about Shayna's character? What's going to be funny about Kayla's character? And it was different in numerous drafts. And I think actually shortly before I um, finished what was eventually the shooting script, I kind of mixed them up into like what was respectively funny about them. I, I changed it uh, and settled like, you know what, I think this is pretty funny. Um, and let's go with this after trying variations and variations uh, before. And then after that, I, uh, I found actresses uh, who fit that. And um, Amanda Brooke Lerner, who's a um, co-producer on the film, uh, and she was a co-producer because she was so instrumental in finding so many of these supporting players. Uh, she referred Alicia and Kayla to me and they read for me. And I was like, you know what? You two would be great as, uh, you know, this role and that role respectively. And then Shane, I actually knew from a film called, uh, Gone Doggy Gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd liked her performance in that. And, uh, so I was like, well, she'd be good for this. And, uh, she's actually a Los Angeles person who I flew out, uh, to do that role. Uh, but, Actually, my favorite thing about the bridesmaids um, is that all of them, um, and Megan, so Megan, Alicia, Shayna, uh, and Kayla, they all actually just became great friends uh, over the two weeks that we were shooting, mm-hmm. and uh, and like still text each other and now like visit each other if they're in each o- on, e- on each other's coast. Uh, like they're actually almost now like the group of friends that you saw in the film. They are that now. Oh wow. But, you know, just so everybody listening knows, it's the film starts with the prank. And one what sets everything, the hijinks in real motion is the fact that Heather go, plans to go ahead that there's going to be a wedding anyway. And mm-hmm. so she keeps going through all the motions, which gives you so mu- many opportunities to capitalize on wedding prep and then capitalize on the whole, the family shows up. All kinds of family members show up. And then you're kind of, the guilt. Is the guilt going to set in? Is the guilt not going to set in? Uh, Do you tell them? Do you not tell them? And this bodes for more comedic moments that you build on. Um, And I really, I appreciate that. And I really like that. But then you take it from beyond the script, beyond the characters. And you bring in... Jason Marin is your cinematographer and what the two of you do visually, what Jason does with the camera, with the use of light is fabulous because then it opens this up into another layer of storytelling. So it's not just your typical bridesmaid, bridesmaids kind of comedy. Mm. Um, talk to me about working with Jason and the, and the visual tonal bandwidth the two of you designed and came up with because you've got some real tonally it's light and bright tonally and visually but then Jason works the camera with the framing um, widening it out and then that's in tandem with your editing so this is a two-hander here between you and Jason so I'm curious about this dynamic and how the two of you developed the look we have. Uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad that you asked about that because, uh, again, <laughs> I've, I've, I feel like a, a broken record now. Working with Jason was amazing, too, and he's brilliant also. Um, but I, um, I met Jason, so I was on the East Coast, and I spoke about my second film at, I can't remember what kind of event, but I met Jason there. And he walked up, uh, he walked up to me afterwards and introduced himself and told me about his own film that he had directed. And I watched it and liked it. Uh, and we kind of like wanted to work together at some point. And so when I was looking for a cinematographer for, uh, this film, uh, admittedly, I went to my cinematographer for my first two films first, but he wasn't able to do it. So then I asked Jason and, um, because he, he is a cinematographer, even though, like I said, he has directed his own feature before, um, and, uh, and I asked him, like, would you be interested? And here's, here's actually what is, 
this is the best thing about the story is that I asked him like, oh, you know, we're probably going to shoot around this time. And he goes, oh, and on the East Coast, he lives on the West Coast. Uh, I go, oh, we're probably going to shoot around this time on the East Coast. And he goes, oh, that's actually like a perfect week. I'm being, uh, I'm getting married the uh, weekend beforehand, and I'm going to be staying in town uh, for like uh, a month or so because my wife is going to be shooting a film, so I might as well shoot a film. Uh, so I ended up shooting uh, my film, and then uh, and it worked out great. And um, working with him was fantastic um, because um, his eye is terrific, and uh, and his use of light. Um, I kind of didn't even, you know, I, I could tell from his own feature, uh, but I kind of didn't even expect how good he would be at it uh, mm-hmm. until I saw him, you know, lighting on set and everything. I'm like, Jesus, I'm like this, this, this guy is really good. Um, insofar as developing uh, a look together, um, we, I, mean, I, I think I might have, I'm trying to remember now, like if I told him any films that would be good reference uh, that I was aiming for, but more than anything, uh, what you just described was I wanted that light, breezy, colorful tone, uh, both in the writing and the editing and the cinematography. And he absolutely uh, nailed it. Uh, I mean, I'm sure that he watched uh, comedy films uh, as reference that are like nice and light and breezy and look pretty, you know, like Father of the Bride mm-hmm. uh, with Steve Martin. Uh, the first one is a good example. Uh, and um, he might have watched that. I know I definitely discussed that with my colorist. But I was aiming for something like that, and he nailed it. Um, and it's funny, um, after each film, I, um, I don't know what it's going to be, but I'm always, like, most proud of something that I myself did on the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, on the, and, for instance, like, on my first film, I was proud that it was pretty funny, I thought. Uh, on my second film, I was really proud of the editing. Uh, on this one, I didn't know what it was going to be until I watched the first cut, and I was like, holy cow, like, the tone is really consistent in this film. And like, actually like the, the look and the colors are nice and consistent and like actually look, they actually look like less messy than in my first films. Uh, I mean, cause it's hard to achieve that sort of thing when you're, you know, you have set locations and the locations look the way that they do. So you're just kind of at the mercy of the way that they look. Um, it all worked out really nicely. And I was like, super proud unexpectedly of the tone of this film after I uh, watched that first cut. Well, you know, so much uh, visually, so much that contributes to that is uh, your location, but also um, we've got a church with it's white on white on white and Jason's Mm -hmm. camera. It just pans up to light, white light streaming through uh, an upper window We've got, you know, so much of this, it's white on white and blues. And that just plays, it, it speaks to light and breezy. So you did really, really well with coming up with a color, with that nice, cool color palette. And then we've got, you know, a harbor right behind uh, with boats and water. And you can hear that. And you've got blue sky. So it really, the whole thing just feels, it feels like a, like a late spring summer day as you, Thank watch, you. Actually, as you uh, watch this. Uh, pardon, uh, pardon the interruption, but it's funny that you mentioned the churches. I'm so glad that you did, because um, the two church choices uh, when I was scouting locations, uh, and I actually, like, fortunately didn't need to uh, look at too many. I found the ones that worked great uh, very early on, but the two churches are uh, themselves like reflect major character differences between mm-hmm. uh, Heather and the other girl uh, who is married at the end of the film. Uh, you know, like Heather's church is this big Gothic kind of like heavy imposing church. And indeed, yeah, like you said, the, uh, the second church is light and white and breezy and airy and just feels really like, I don't know, just uplifting, just like, uh, and, and then segues into that scene at the uh, reception, which is mm-hmm. just as equally uh, light and uplifting and happy and bright and breezy. Uh, all of that was purposeful. Uh, when I found those churches, I'm like, these are great. These will help to convey that tone that you just described. Uh, and even better, uh, added bonus, uh, I did, so in the end, I don't want to ruin too much uh, for those who are listening who are going to watch the film, but in the end, I needed a closet 
to be just behind the altar of mm-hmm. the second church. Uh, I wrote the scene to be that way, but I was like, ah, this is never going to work out. Uh, I'll have to like this final location and rewrite the finale in some other way. Uh, because, you know, like what are the chances that this exact location is going to work out? And then I went to see that uh, big, you know, that white church, that mm-hmm. light and airy one in the finale. And I was like, wow, this is great. I just liked it off of the look. I'm like, this is exactly what I want. Uh, and then uh, I discovered that there was like a panel that opens up behind the altar and, uh, and could be faked as a closet. And, uh, and like my joke immediately was like, well, I'm in the right place to thank the person responsible for that miracle. Uh, so I immediately got that, uh, I immediately got that church. Uh, and, um, and it just worked out fantastic. And I was so happy. Like I do, I, I wanted that, you know, white, um, you know, breeziness at the end, mm-hmm. uh, and throughout a lot of the film. Uh, and it was funny because working with Jason was great, but there's one place where he, and, uh, I think he, and definitely, uh, my producer, uh, maybe disagreed with me sometimes is I, I really like, uh, I actually kind of really liked blowing out windows, uh, for like, you know, like white background. Mm-hmm. And I did that, like you notice in the opening scene. Yes. Uh, and I did that. And uh, and I love it, and I and I feel like I convinced them that it was the right choice by the end. See, and I love when it's appropriate. I love that effect myself. Um, mm-hmm. I think it adds a lot. It does. It adds a lightness. It 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 gives a, a sense of hope, openness. Um, so I really like that, and you use that so well in this film. Um, and I do, and I have to tell you. Choosing that huge behemoth Gothic church, stone masonry church, uh, as the one that the character of Heather wanted to be married in, um, it fit her character, her unwielding, uh, you know, unyielding, mm-hmm. unbending, um, you know, this is, this is what I want, this is my framework, and she was, in essence, that immovable stone church. So I, lo- uh, I, I think- love that. Yeah, I mean, honestly, like if you want to distill the film, uh, you could just really say that the film is Heather's journey from that church to the second church yeah. as a person, you know, figuratively speaking. Mm-hmm. Well, before we run out of time on the show today, we have a few minutes yet, but I have to ask, talk to you about your score, Mike Petrie, Petrie's score. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Here again. It is. It's the frosting on the wedding cake here. It is. It's light. It's breezy as well. That is something that just. And it's it's beautiful. There's a lilt. There's beauty to it. So I'm curious about your conversations with Mike and what you wanted with the music. Um, yeah, uh, well, like I'm happy to talk about that. And, uh, it's, uh, Mike Petrie. I know it's like it, when I first saw his name written out, I was like, Ooh, how do I see this? Uh, and then I found out it's Petrie. Uh, and I say it because I want all the listeners out there to know that Mike, Pet- Mike Petrie is a fantastic composer. Uh, if you're making a film, you should contact him. Um, yeah, like, uh, I actually was referred to Mike by the composer for my first two films who was unable to do this one. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I spoke to him and again, like, you know, if, if people listening are, starting to sense a theme i wanted light and breezy mm-hmm. and uh and he was you know he had samples that uh, achieved that already and after speaking with them i was like this guy is great um and so um we just started working and actually the, the thing that um the real the the, the big hump uh, of of the musical score was really that opening scenes uh piece mm-hmm. which um is i think like four and a half minutes maybe uh, which is a pretty long piece yeah. to write, uh, and it has to cover that whole opening scene, which is kind of like the cold open for the film, where you're introduced to all the characters a little bit, like you know, like in Boogie Nights or something mm-hmm. like that. And um, and I wanted the music. Actually, what I gave him as a reference for that, um, because I did give him a reference, uh, was um, Hans Zimmer's "You're So Cool" from True Romance, okay. uh, which is a fantastic piece. It sounds a lot like. Uh, I mean, it's. And even that piece is a, a ripoff of, uh, I shouldn't say ripoff because Hans Zimmer is amazing, but it's, uh, we'll say, an homage to uh, Days of Heaven's score. Um, and, uh, and I told Mike, like, you know, I want something as, you know, light and breezy as this, and um, that can last for four and a half minutes. And we worked on that piece. And we probably worked on that piece and then the uh, music for Heather's uh, 
church scene later the most, those two pieces. But really, it was that opening piece. And once we kind of nailed that one, all the other pieces kind of flowed pretty well from that. Mm-hmm. Um, there were, uh, I'm trying to think of some standout pieces. There was Heather's, like I said, Heather's church scene, right. uh, where um, there's a lot of like interesting shifts in that one. Uh, it kind of shifts from like his own original score into Canon and D uh, into mm-hmm. a very famous piece after that, an even more famous classical piece after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that one was like, um, I think that one, if I remember him uh, correctly, was his most difficult piece to write. Uh, maybe if only for synchronization, I'm not sure. Um, but then, uh, but truly though, like all the other uh, moments after that uh, opening piece, like once we got through that opening piece, everything uh, with him was fantastic uh, and pretty, you know, pretty easy to write. And a lot of it was just kind of coming down to like synchronization uh, stuff, you know, like uh, more structural things because he was just mm-hmm. nailing the tone uh, piece after piece. Um, the place where uh, he most, uh, surprised me uh, and pleased me uh, because of that surprise was um, Maria's uh, reception when we first see it at the end. Oh, um, yes. That, yeah, that piece is so good. Um, it starts in Maria's church uh, as uh, Maria is, uh, you know, marrying her groom and, you know, it, the astute viewer, I guess I'll say, recognizes that that scene isn't actually about them marrying, it's about uh, our heroes. Um and it starts with something that was uh, it's kind of like harpsichordy sounding, mm-hmm. um, which actually um, I think I might have even showed him a piece uh, from Royal Tenenbaums for that, uh, which was like the inspiration uh, for that like wonderful harpsichordy sound. But then afterwards, uh, when there's that like flash to white and it goes into Maria's reception, yes. um, Mike wrote something, uh, and he never expected to use this at all in the score, and neither did I expect him to but he used like some wonderful synthesizer instruments uh that just work so well and mm-hmm. like contribute to the magic of like seeing this reception uh and then ultimately exiting onto the uh, back of the uh, uh reception balcony area for the finale uh for the final scene uh like when he played that he i feel I, if i remember correctly he was like super excited to hear what i thought about it and i was super excited to be like dude that was brilliant <laughs> <laughs> uh so that was my favorite that was probably my like our our favorite like mutual aha moment working on the score together Uh, well unfortunately Jonathan we are all out of time in the show today so I have to let you go I can't thank you enough for coming on the show to talk about Batshit Bride Um, everybody can see it everywhere it's on all the digital platforms right now yeah and actually uh, let me let me say one thing Uh, (laughs) so the title of the film is Batshit Bride, and that's B-A-T-S-H asterisk yes. Bride. Uh, so when you search on platforms, you'll, I think you'll probably want to remember that asterisk. Um, and then also Amazon uh, kindly uh, wouldn't allow that name. So, um, th- so really, at, for those who want to watch the film, the best thing to do is uh, go to uh, batshitbride.com, um, although the URL is without the asterisk, so that's B-A-T-S-H-I-T bride.com I've listed all of the outlets there and you can just click on the hyperlinks to go to the ones that have hyperlinks or look up the uh, cable places um, by the ones listed there Uh, but yeah batshitbride.com B-A-T-S-H-I-T bride.com you'll find what you need and it's it is and dare we say it again it's light it's breezy it's charming it's funny and a knockout performance by, from Megan Falcone. Um, Absolutely. And it, it's, you know, perfect, perfect to take your mind off of everything and just sit back yes. and enjoy it. Jonathan, yes. yes, thank you so, so much. You have to come back on the show again. You have to make another film. Uh, well, okay. You know what? I will make another film just so I can come back on your show. Okay. That works. I'll take right, that. Deal. I'll take that. Jonathan, thank you so, so much. And I can't wait to talk to you again. Likewise. Thank you, Debbie, for, you know, for this interview and for everything that you've done to support the film. Uh, I and the cast and crew, we all super appreciate it. Uh, yeah, well, the film deserves my support. So you got it. Cool. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thanks, Jonathan. Bye-bye. Bye. So we are all out of time today. If you want to see something that is light and breezy, fun and funny, 
Batshit Bride, on all, all the platforms, or just go to the website and click on any of the platforms that you want. And then Friday, Tom Berenger in Blood and Money. And I, it's an incredible, incredible film. Next week, we have Brian Levin joining us, talking about Union Bridges, plus some more exclusive interviews. So until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. <laughs>